As believers, there are many gates through which we must pass in the Christian life. My name is Gene Brooks. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. Recently, I preached a message at Grace Evangelical Church in Congo Town, Liberia, in which I encouraged the people of God to take the passage of the building of the wall and the gates around the city and see them as the walk of the Christian life. Join me as we do part one, the first six gates around the city of Jerusalem. Open your Bibles with me to the third chapter of Nehemiah. We're going to look at today the gates of Jerusalem and how they affect our lives as Christians. Walls are very important. Walls protect us. Walls set us apart. Walls separate things that need to be separated. Walls define space for us, right? Walls show you what's inside and what's outside. Walls tell us who is in who is out. Walls define what's yours and what's mine. Walls help set healthy boundaries for us. And one of the things that was a big problem in, in uh, Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah is there was no wall for the city. And... There was no protection for the city. There was no way for them to know what's in the city and what's out of the city. There was no way for them to provide security for their people. And so they were living in constant fear of uh, bandits, of zogos, or uh, rogues, uh, theft, uh, uh, mayhem, uh, murder. Anything could have happened to them or their family. And because there was no wall, they were, in, they were in constant fear. And so we come to um, Nehemiah 3. And in the end of chapter 2, last week we saw where Nehemiah had gone out and inspected the walls. And then he came back to the people and he says, we need to start rebuilding the wall. You see the ruin that we're in. And they said, yes, let's do it. And so chapter 3 is where they really begin the work of building the walls. Now, if you look at chapter 3 with me, you'll see a lot of words, a lot of names, a lot of places along throughout the chapter. And yes, Nehemiah took, uh, he took and wrote down and listed 10 gates that were repaired along with the towers and the walls and the important structures because a healthy city needs walls for security and needs gates for access and for serving the city and for security as well. So he was documenting for all time the, and for the official records the names and the accomplishments of the people who worked on the wall. So, uh, so when we look at this text, sometimes we look at it the way we look at all the names. First of all, I say I can't pronounce the name. So it's going to be hard for me to read it. 
And another thing, like the similar to the genealogies, right? You look at the genealogies in Matthew 1, 1 Chronicles, first nine chapters, you think, why is this in the Bible? I mean, we understand Psalm 23. We understand the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. We understand the Sermon on the Mount. We, see why, we can immediately see why Psalms is in the Bible, right? But when we come to a passage like this, where it lists names and places and what they did, and it's just as it looks like it's just a technical document, you wonder, why is this in the Word of God? Well, see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that the whole Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not just the places we like, not just the places that we understand well, not just the places that are easy for us to get, but also the places that are hard, also the places that don't really make sense, even places that we think, why is this in the Bible? All of the Bible is inspired from one end to the other, and all of it is without error. So if it's all without error, and if it is all equally inspired, so that would mean that a genealogy is as important as the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Then it would follow that Nehemiah 3, listing a lot of names, is just as inspired and just as important as the Sermon on the Mount. You following me? And so when I look at it and I can't figure out why it's there or what I'm supposed to understand from it, the problem then, because it's without error and because it's an inspired Word of God, the problem is not with the text. The problem is where? Is with me, right? If I can't understand it, the problem is with me. So I need to ask the Holy Spirit to show me what it is here. Now, when you come to a passage like Nehemiah 3, you do a lot of that kind of praying. You're saying, Lord, I don't understand. Why is it here? And he's probably saying something like he said to the disciples many times, Are you still so dull? Oh, you have little faith? All kinds of things like that, right? And, uh, but, he, but the Holy Spirit will teach us as if we will learn. So we come to this passage understanding that he recorded these names on purpose. Without straining the text or going too far into the, uh, 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 the extremes of allegory that you can get off the main meaning of the text... We can take from this chapter some important spiritual illustrations that will help encourage us in our own personal lives and our ministries. So the ten gates of chapter 3 are equivalent to ten important aspects of the Christian life. In fact, there are two gates that are not mentioned in Nehemiah 3 but that, because there were twelve gates around the city. And because those 12 gates were there, two of them were not mentioned in chapter 3. There is a reason for that. My question was, why are they not mentioned? There is a reason. I'm going to share it with you. But these, but these 12 gates around the city of Jerusalem not only are going to give us an illustration of the Christian life, but they also are a shadow 
of what is to come in our future. Revelation chapter 21. The new Jerusalem will be built. And it will have 12 gates as well. And so the city of Jerusalem is a shadow of what is to come with the, with the future that is still ahead of us, even though this was written far in the past. So Nehemiah wrote this passage to teach Israel that, that God will work in our lives as we work together toward one goal, submitting our lives to Him. What I want to show you from what God's Word teaches us today is about some information about our Christian lives. So we're going to look at the first six gates of the 12 gates, and next week we will finish these 12 gates. Wow, good job. And so we find ourselves here in the first gate. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to look at the first two verses. First two verses. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to him. Now, here's Nehemiah. He's come back from Persia, and now he's getting everyone to work on the walls in the, in the passage. In the same way in the church, when we come together for a sense of purpose, we work together for the kingdom in unity. And that common sense of purpose unites us as a people. And so our center point is who? Jesus Christ. He unites us. And so even though we can differ and have different opinions about different things, some of you like potato greens more than you like Dumbledore. Some of you have an opinion about which soccer team is going to win the Euro Cup or the World Cup, right? We differ on different things, but we are all unified in Christ, and together we're working for the kingdom. And Nehemiah assigned teams to work close to their homes as possible. Now, if you look over Nehemiah 3, you'll see that they're working in front of their houses. So he motivated them to build their house. So if they come to you and they say, we're going to build a wall around the city, your responsibility is build a wall in front of your house. How motivated will you be to do it? Well, that wall is going to protect you and your family once it gets all connected. So are you going to do your best to build a wall the best you can because that's the one, if it's attacked by an enemy army, they're going to be coming against that wall. Do you want that wall to fall down because you didn't do a good job? No, you're going to do your best. So he, put the, he asked everyone to build a wall in front of their home and their business. And so that the sheep gate was the first one that he mentioned. It's not, so the kingdom is built on relationships as we all work together. And, in, and the building the wall is an example of helping those we know. Nehemiah also organized the work groups based on their neighborhoods or families or the profession. The priests worked together. The jewelry makers worked together. And the bakers worked together. The women worked together. So it was based on their, group, their groupings. And so we have different groupings in the body of Christ. 
and they had different groupings working on the walls. So we shouldn't be afraid of a diversity of people in our church. We should embrace it because it's giving us more richness. The Lord is sending wealth when he sends different kinds of people to our church. He's bringing more wealth into the church because it's more talents and more giftings. So when you're holding on to your gift and you're not doing anything to serve the kingdom, when you're holding on to your own talents, talents are different from gifts. Spiritual gift is something the Holy Spirit gives you. We see them in Romans and 1 Corinthians and a few other places. But a talent is something that you have acquired. Maybe you're really good at singing. Maybe you're really good at, uh, at, at uh, decorating or cooking. That's a talent that you, your mom taught you or, or you grew up learning. Maybe you are good at uh, computers or maybe you are excellent at sewing. Or maybe you, are, you know how to help uh, people. Uh, you have a counseling uh, ability. You learn how to counsel. You went to school for something. You're good with finances. Those kinds of things are talents. And so when you bring those talents and those gifts into the church, it enriches the church when you share them by serving. And so the people, we have all kinds of different cultures and backgrounds that bring us into the local church. The Lord brought me and my family to this church. He brought us here because I didn't choose this church. When I came, I thought, I don't know where I'm going to take our family. And I had two people say, you're going to come to Grace Sunday, right? And I said, okay, I'll come Sunday. Then the next thing I know is Pastor Rick says, you're ordained, right? I said, yeah. You've been pastoring. Yeah, about 10 years in the States. Okay, so I'll see you at the pastoral meetings on Tuesday. We're going to plan a service. Oh, uh, Okay. And then I arrived, and they said, okay, you're assigned to preach this week, this week, this week, this week. And all of a sudden, I, I, I didn't even plan to come to this church. The next thing I know, I'm on the pastoral team. <laughs> you see? And so God will do that for you. He will, he will, he will. So I, I tell people, I tell my friends in the States, I said, I backed into this. I didn't come looking for it. I backed into it. I backed up, and I found myself in a place. Uh, and, and so that's just the way Lord will do. He brings different gifts and callings and backgrounds. And so my first, my first hesitation was, well, I'm a, I'm a stranger. I'm an outsider. I should be quiet. I should let the Liberians do everything. They should be the leaders of everything. And then my friend Moses said, no, you came 5,000 miles all the way from America to preach and teach the gospel, and you'll give you an opportunity, and you're going to say No. What's wrong with you? So he corrected my thinking. So I'm happy to share what little I have for you with you. You know, we, we all have a little bit of food, right? We put all our food in the pot and we share it, right? That's what we're doing. We're sharing what we have. So out of my poverty, I will share with you. Out of your poverty, you share with me. Then we will all be rich, right? So I want you to notice that be, so the first word of the chapter, Nehemiah 3, the first word is, is Eliashib. You say, why is that important? That's a God's name. What the God's name means, God restores. Wow. So Nehemiah here, Eliashib is a messianic picture of Jesus Christ, who is our restoration. 
And, and the book is that picture, rebuilding our lives and restoring them and restoring societies for its glory. Now, the sheep gate is the one, first one that they mention. Now, go over with me to chapter, chapter 3, verse 32. The last gate that's mentioned is the sheep gate. Between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made their repairs. The last gate and the first gate are mentioned as the sheep gate. This is the gate through which all the animals, especially the temple sacrifices, were brought into the city to be slain for the sins of the people. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22 This is the only gate that which it is recorded that it was sanctified or it was set apart and dedicated in a special way to God. I want you to notice that the, it was the high priest that worked on this gate. And that points to our great high priest, Jesus Christ, right? Who went into the Holy Holies. Notice also there's no mention of locks or bars on this gate. And when you look at the meanings of the names of the people who built the gate, if you're reading it in Hebrew, you will immediately see it. You see the meaning of the name when you read the name, right? Now in the West, many of, we've lost a lot of the sense of that a name has meaning. But especially, you have such wealth among the tribes in Liberia. So that there's a, each person's name has a meaning, right? And so because it has a meaning, when you call that name, that name of that person... There's a meaning that is attached to their life, right? And so when, you, when they're reading it, the, the people who were reading it or listening to it in originally, in the original language, when the name came up, they heard the meaning. So if you take the names of the people who restored the sheep gate and you put them together, it, say, it, teach, it reads this way. My God will return with a strong trumpet blast. Hmm. So right here with the sheep gate, there is the announcement that the Messiah is coming back. He's coming back. I want you to notice also that he begins and ends with the sheep gate. Verse 1 and verse 32. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. I want you to notice also that it's the sheep gate where he starts. He could have started any gate of the twelve. He started the sheep gate. It's the only way to God is through sacrifice. And there's always, this is always the starting point for the believer. God's work centers on the sacrifice of the Lamb of God at Calvary. This is the gate where all the temple sacrifices came through. Remember also, Jesus said, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Every person who desires eternal life must humble themselves, confess their sins, submit their lives to Jesus Christ. There's not many paths to God. There's one. You have to come through the sheep gate in order to come into the city of God. And so he says, enter in Matthew 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, 
the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So notice that, I want to come back to, the, to this. Nehemiah mentions that there's no locks and there's no bars on the sheep gate. That's because no one is locked out. Everyone is welcome. Everyone can come in. And notice that the high priest himself built the doors. It says it there in the text. He, our great high priest, and our shepherd himself is the door. Today the sheep gate is a, is a picture I took. Can you get a picture there? There's a picture of... Uh, I took a picture of the, sh of the sheep gate. It's called, today it's called the lion's gate. Remember, reminds me of Revelation chapter 5. When they said, we're waiting for the, for the lion of the tribe of Judah to come. We're waiting for the lion. And when he comes out, he looks like a lamb who's been slain. So the lion is the lamb. And so today, in irony, today the sheep gate is called the lion gate. Because there are little... There are cats on either side carved into the stone. Is it there? Yeah, there they are. The two you see the two tigers? They're actually tigers. They're the symbols of one of the Muslim uh, 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 sheikhs that, that took over the city of Jerusalem for some years. They put their, their family symbol there. And the, the Baybars in the 13th century. And it's also called St. Stephen's Gate. Uh, after there's a tradition that Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was martyred outside this gate. The lion's gate leads to the pools of Bethesda. This is one tradition says that Jesus came out this gate on his way to Calvary. He came down the Via Dolorosa. This is also famous during the Six Day War. There's a picture you can Google of the Israeli troops going into the city of uh, the old city in 1967 war and uh, the, they entered the old city through this gate the, the lion's gate uh, for the first time to take over and be in charge in the first time maybe almost 2,000 years and today they're in charge of the city notice that Nehemiah could have begun at any gate but he began only at the sheep gate my friend have you been cleansed of sin have you come through the sheep gate? Have you, been, have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. That's it. No other option for you or for me. I want you to notice also about Eliashib. He, there's something here about his name. He's mentioned also in Nehemiah 12.10 as being of the family, priestly family of Jehoiakim from way back. But unfortunately, while Eliashib was diligent in working on material things, things people could see like walls, we find him again in Nehemiah 13 at the end of the book. He was not diligent in the spiritual matters, and here he was the priest, the high priest. We find him providing rooms in the temple for Tobiah the Ammonite who is an enemy of the people of God and God's purposes. He was, and Ammonites were in the law not permitted in the temple. He was misappropriating finances and in-kind resources in the temple for the benefit of this enemy, Tobiah. They were all fighting him. Tobiah had even married into their family. And so 
He was doing that. People, we cannot have leaders in the church who are good with doing public things like building walls, but they're not faithful with spiritual things where you don't see, such as mishandling the name of Christ, mishandling the provisions of the kingdom, the resources of the kingdom. Leaders like that are not qualified to serve. Second name you see here is Hananel. You see there at the last word of the ver verse 1, the tower of Hananel. Hananel means God's grace. We see it in this verse here. The tower of Hananel stood next to the sheep gate. We see it in the rebuilding of the wall. To, it rebuilt to the tower of Hananel. It rebuilt up to God's grace. This is a pars partial fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 38. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me, for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. That prophecy is not fully complete in Jeremiah because Zechariah says that in the future, even in the future for us, says that Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place, naming the gates, including the tower of Hananel. He says it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. So this tower of Hananel then brings in the prophecies of the end times and it's important for us to understand that, we're, that the, Nehemiah is focused on the end times. What a picture of the gospel. The tower of God's grace stands beside and defends the sheep gate. God's grace defends the sheep gate built by the high priest whose name is God Restores. A gate by which we only enter by the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. In two verses in Nehemiah 3. That's how you can have a building a wall and you can see a text like this. And right there we've already seen the gospel. Amen. Second one is the fish gate. Verses 3 through 5. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hassana. They laid its beams, put its doors and bars in place. And I'm going to go down to verse 5. Their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. This was a key entrance to the city. Merchants used this gate when they brought fish from the Mediterranean Sea. There was a fish market near the gate. This gate is near today's Damascus Gate, nearby. And this gate has a role in the last days. Ze Zephaniah chapter 1 says, There shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate. The meanings of the names of the people who restored the fish gate, if you look at the meanings here, you get a picture. I will say the words, and you tell me who you think they're talking about. Thorns. One name means thorns. One means the myrrh of death. One name means God is my light. One, my shalom. The next one, my deliverer. The next one, my righteous one is blessed by God through a confirming trumpet blast. Who does that sound like it's pointing to? One person, right? Jesus. So when we having received the salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are to become fishers of men. So the sheep gate tells us that we, we enter through the blood of the lamb, right? We enter, it's the only way. But then once we are entered through the blood of the Lamb, then we are to become fishers of men. Christ saves us 
to be soul winners. He's, we are saved to serve Him. God freed us from sin so we could serve Him. Not, we, not that we work our way into salvation by serving Him, but we serve Him because we're grateful and thankful to Him. We can't save ourselves by serving Him. God is the one who does that. So when, when, he, when he saves us, He saves us to reach others for the gospel. Have you entered a fish gate? Are you serving your Lord? Are you a fisher of men? If not, why not? And look at verse 5. It says the nobles did not support the work of their masters. When the people set out to rebuild what's devastated, when people set out to repair the gates of God, when people set out to restore what used to be, one problem you're going to have is that you may not be able to trust those who consider themselves the nobles. So often you'll find, now there are exceptions, but you will find the people that you think would be the most ready, the people who would be the most capable, the people who would contribute the most of themselves and of their resources, the people who have been saved the longest in church, the people who seem to know the Bible the best, the people who seem to be the most educated, the people who seem to be the most affluent in our fellowship, they are the ones that are the most reluctant to get on with the work. They are the ones that do not want to get their hands dirty doing what needs to be done. Most of the time, God has brought about a rebuilding of the broken. It has usually been, in fact, almost always, it's done through the poor people. The people who don't have anything, the working classes. In the big revivals of South America, it was happening in the poor barrios. In the Salvation Army in London in the 1800s, they, they, they started in the slums. In John Wesley's revivals in England, it was the coal miners, the lowest of the lowest working class. That's where the gospel prospered. The middle class people God uses in rebuilding a devastated church will be those who become servants of the poor and the working classes. And if we want to see the gospel move in Liberia, that's where we need to focus our work. Don't entrust everything to the nobles. Don't think that the people who one would expect to rebuild the gates are going to take up the work too quickly. He says the nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Why? Because they would, did not, they were unteachable. They would not take the instruction from someone else. They wanted to be the chief. Everybody wanted to be the chief. And they thought that they were supposed to be. People like that tend to like their comfort too much. They tend to like their position too much. They don't like, they don't want to rock the boat because they like things to where they are. They'd rather make do with what we have. Why? Because if they join in and try to rebuild something or try to change something, it's going to cost them something. The nobles don't support the work of the masters. Generally, it's the everyday folks, the humble people, those we sometimes call the salt of the earth. They are the ones who get things done in the kingdom of God. The third thing is the old gate. 
We come to the old gate. Now first, we know we enter by the blood of the Lamb. And we become fishers of men. And the third thing is, our guide is God's Word. Our guide is God's Word. The old gate was situated at the northwest corner. <clears throat> we see it mentioned in 2 Kings 14 and Jeremiah 31. Possibly this is, the, Yesh the Yeshana gate is the gate to the new quarter. Now, there are some differing opinions, but this gate is likely the Damascus gate in the Arab quarter. This is a picture that I took uh, of the today's Damascus gate. And in Nehemiah's day, the, the old gate opened to the new quarter or the new area that was being built. All the new homes in the city, the new quarter. Uh, and so, so it's ironic, the old gate for the new quarter. And there's actually a picture of the scripture. Jeremiah says, stand in the way and look. Ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk ye in it. Then you will find rest for your soul. God's way is to walk by faith. In the great 4th and 5th century North African theologian Augustine said of the Bible, The new is in the old contained, the old is in the new explained. We are called to stay with the old paths. Affirming and practicing the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, according to Jesus' little brother Jude. Are you walking in the old paths? Are you obeying the timeless truths of God's word? Are faith and obedience the hallmarks of your life? Are you struggling through life? Or do you find rest for your soul because you are finding yourself in the word of God? The God, the guide, God's guide for us is His Word. The fourth gate is the Ephraim gate. The Ephraim gate tells us we are to bear fruit. We are to bear fruit. The Ephraim gate is actually next, but it's not mentioned here in the text. It's mentioned in chapter 8, verse 16, in the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's mentioned in Nehemiah 12, verse 39, when they dedicate the wall. It wasn't mentioned because it did not need repairs. They were only mentioning the ones they were repairing. We are to bear fruit. Because God bears the fruit through us. So he doesn't need to repair that. It's his work. His work does not need repair. And so the, <laughs> the Ephraim was the name of the second born son to Joseph in Egypt. In Hebrew, Ephraim means fruitfulness. Now the Tower of the Ovens was located on Baker Street near the Western Wall. Today where you see the Jews praying at the Western Wall, if this, that, that gate was near that place. That was, in Nehemiah's day, Jerusalem's baking district. It's where all the baking took place for the bread. It was here that the Levites baked the showbread that was placed in the temple before the Lord. King Zedekiah had his guards feed Jeremiah a half loaf of bread from Baker Street in Jeremiah 37, verse 21. And it was here that the daughters of Halokesh worked on the wall. These are the uh, group of women that were mentioned, that they built the wall. The only women mentioned here in Nehemiah 3, verses 10 and 11, you see them there. He says, adjoining this, uh, they, they, that they made the... Uh, the women, verse 12, 
Shalom, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. And so these women, when we focus on the word of God, the ancient gate, the old gate, and we abide in Christ, we begin abiding in Christ and it brings a believer into lasting fruitfulness. Jesus told us in John 15 that we are to abide in the vine, right? He says, without me, you can do nothing. But with me, if you will abide in me, you will produce fruit, fruit that will last. Right? And so the Ephraim gate reminds us we are to bear fruit. Fifth, the valley gate. In verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zanoah. They rebuilt it, put its doors and bolts and bars in place, and they also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. So here we are at the valley gate. The valley gate teaches us that we need humility and grace. We need humility and grace. The valley gate was most likely on the southwest side between the tower of the ovens and the dung gate. It led into the, the Tyropet, uh, Tyropean Valley. Um, and the valley gate is where Nehemiah last week began his night ride to examine the ruins of Jerusalem. You know, God uses valleys in our lives. It's Alfred in the valley when God meets us. When we are in a bad place, a low place, that's where God will meet us. Many of us could tell testimonies about that in our own lives. When there were things that were happening, many of you who are older, you will you'll be able to immediately go back to an event that happened during the war, or when someone you know passed, or when uh, you lost everything, a valley. Often God takes us to, from the mountaintop success and he brings us into the deep valleys to teach us grace and humility. But it's only when we yield to Christ in those times and we serve others do we truly enter the fullness of Christ's life for us. Jesus gave us the perfect example by humbling himself and taking the form of a servant and being obedient to death. Therefore, God exalted him, it tells us in Isaiah 40, and every believer needs a valley gate. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sometimes we say, why am I in so many valleys? Why am I having so many hard times? Maybe God is breaking you of your pride. You remember the woman who anointed Jesus with perfume before his crucifixion? What happened to the bottle of nard, the perfume? In order for the perfume to come out, it had to be broken. And, and once it was broken, the perfume filled the whole house, it says, with, this, with the aroma of the perfume. There are things that you have in you. God has placed in you. It will only come out when he breaks you. God has things in you that can only come out when he breaks you. He will take you through brokenness. You said no one would do anything to me. Then friend, the more he wants to use you, the more he will break you. The more hard times he will take you through. I'm trying to remember the quotation. But 
uh, it goes something like this. Um, the, the, the one, the man or woman that God will use most mightily, he will break most completely. So if you want to be used by God, you have to prepare to learn humility by being broken. It's a trait of every follower of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that you would learn humility and obedience. You've got to trust Him in the valley. You've got to seek His face for your trials. And He will mold you to be more like Himself. More humble. More gentle. More servant-hearted. More Christ-like. And then we come to the last gate we're going to do today. The dung gate. The dung gate teaches us that we need daily cleansing from sin. The dung gate was located at the southern tip of the city, near the pool of Siloam. It was the main exit to the valley of Hinnom, and this was where the city disposed of its garbage. Uh, it was called Sha'ar, means gate. Hashpot means garbage, the gate of garbage. The dung gate. Its name comes from the trash and the ash that was removed from the temple and taken outside the city into the valley of Hinnom to be burned. So all the dirt was removed from the city to clean the city and was taken out to be burned. The names of those who repaired the dung gate mean this. God is my king. He enlarges the people, the house of his vineyard. So even in the trash and the garbage... We have the hope of the gospel. The present day dung gate was built during the Ottoman Empire. It's probably not exactly in the same place that it was in Nehemiah's day. But this is a picture of what it looks like today. In 1948 it was widened to allow cars to be able to enter the city. In the days of the temple it was the gate where the refuse was taken. Today it's the main gate into the Jewish quarter. So if you're going to visit the Western Wall or the Temple Mount, you go through this gate. You know, if you're not disposing of waste regularly, you're not going to be healthy. So if a city can't get rid of its garbage and move it out, you know, when you go through parts of town, I'm, I'm thinking right now of places in Dwala, and you ride along and the trash is piled high, right? And, and everybody is so relieved when, when the big truck arrives and they're able to load it all on the truck and carry it away. Right? Everybody's relieved because it's out. If we don't have daily cleansing of sin in our lives, daily confession of our sin, then we're going to become unhealthy spiritually. So just like the city, we've got to get rid of whatever defiles us. If we don't, it will destroy us. If your kidneys and your liver are not working properly to get rid of the waste product from your body, it can cause all kinds of diseases. It can cause cancer. It can cause all kinds of things that would destroy you. So your body works to get rid of the waste. And in our spiritual lives, we must confess our sin to the Lord. Regularly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
That means not only do you confess the sin you've been involved in, but you also train yourself not to have to re-sanctify things that you already have set aside as holy in your life. So I was listening to someone conversation a few years ago. They said, have you watched so-and-so movie? And I said, no, I've not watched that movie. He said, well, uh, what is it about? And so they, they explained it. And she, and she said, no, I don't think I'll watch that movie because I don't want to have to re-sanctify my eyes. I don't want to have to be re-sanctified in my spirit. I don't want to have to go to the Lord and confess a sin of being involved with that. Or I won't, don't, I would rather, so you, you control what's coming in and you get rid of all the bad going out. Make it go out. You confess your sin. But don't sin in order to have, because you know you have a way to confess it. Right? You don't do that. It doesn't make sense. Every believer has been saved from sin once and for all. But we still need daily cleansing from sin. Are your sins confessed up to date? We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when you take the Lord's Supper unworthily, that is you have not asked the Lord to examine your life and you may not examine your life and confess the sin before God up to date. He said that there were people in the church at Corinth that were sick, people who were weak, and people who had passed off because they were taking the, the communion unworthily. They were not keeping themselves clean before God. Our salvation is secure. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation. But sin damages your relationship with God and with others. It clouds it. It blocks it. Do you keep a short account of sin with the Lord? When the Holy Spirit says, mm, you should not have said that. Do you go back to the person and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Lord, please forgive me for that. Or do you just carry on with yourself? No, I'm not confessing anything. I didn't say nothing wrong. And I am not going to confess. That's just not me. I don't do that. Then you are building up poison in your system. That will destroy you. You have to confess. Up to, God has provided cleansing for you. Access it. And there are some here who have never confessed their sin. Those are people who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would invite you today, if you have not confessed your sin and submitted your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do it today. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know what's coming this coming week. And you want to prepare yourself and know that your future is secure. I'm not trying to scare you, but I am trying to give you some truth. And so we're going to transition in just a few minutes to the Lord's Supper. Before you take the Lord's Supper, clean, lay before your Lord. What I do myself is, as the Lord, is there anything between you and me that we need to we need that I need to confess to you? And He will always bring me something. Sometimes it surprises me what it is, but I confess it. Because I want to be clean before him. And even Jesus said, when you bring your gift to the altar, if you have something between you and your, your brother, you need to leave it there and you need to go and straighten it out and come back. Sometimes we don't take communion because we've got a problem we need to fix first with a relationship.
So you want to consider that as well. We'll do the next six gates next week. Uh, let's transition now. I'm going to pray and we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would continue to, to guide us, continue to grow us into Christ's likeness. We thank you for the gates of Jeremiah in Nehemiah 3, the, the gates of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 3. And we ask that you would uh, continue to, to uh, help us to grow to be more like you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to part one of this message on the gates of Jerusalem from Nehemiah 3. And hope you will listen to part two of this message, which will include this last six gates of the Jerusalem. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks.